0: Good morning, Arise. Good morning. So the last time I was here, I said good morning, Alliance. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been a minute, and I was driving in today, and as I was turning the corner onto, uh, was it Bentley? As I turned the corner onto Bentley, I saw the sign. I saw this red sign, and and, and I just happened to be, I, you know, I had my music playing, and it was you know too loud of course cuz it always is and there was a um, there was a song that was playing as i was seeing the sign and it's this this guy's name is Molly Music is that me clicking i think it's your earring oh that is a thing that happens and i typically at amago take my earring off so that it doesn't click so forgive me <laughs> But, um, and yeah, people will walk up to me after service and go, do you know you're missing an earring? i like, yeah, I know I'm missing an earring, and you're missing that click, 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 click noise. But, um, so Molly, he has this song, and it really has like maybe two lines to the entire song. And the song is just, all the glory belongs to you. All the glory belongs to you, oh God. And we sing hallelujah, hallelujah. All the glory belongs to you. And that's all I heard coming in to hear this morning. And, and it, was, it was such a huge thing for me because I, I got to say, like last night and this morning I went to bed and I don't know if you've ever just kind of had this um, nothing feeling where you don't sense the Holy Spirit, you don't feel God, and, and that does not typically happen when I'm studying for a sermon. This is my happy place. When I'm, when I'm working on this. And I just wasn't going through it. And so I went to bed last night and I just said, you know, I don't, I don't feel you and I don't know what this is, but I know you're here and I know you love me and that's what I know. And I went to sleep and got up and just listened to music and, and by the time I got here, it was almost like he just kind of uncovered himself for me when I got here. And so I just, um, I'm grateful for that because nothing's worse than that feeling of, uh I just don't, you feel me. You know, I just, um, yeah. And you know he's there, but you just, you know. So I just want you guys to know that he is here in this place. And I know you all know, but sometimes you just got to say hallelujah. Sometimes you got to just say Thank you, Jesus, and so that's what I say, and it's interesting that this is the first week of Advent, and it's a four-week period before Christmas where we um, celebrate the anticipation and the coming of Christ, the Messiah. Advent is a Latin word that literally just, it just means coming or arrival, and we spend these four Sundays just studying and looking at the real meaning of Christmas and and it's funny because it's like we think about, you know, the past and specifically the preparation and the celebration for the first coming of Jesus. And then we also think of Advent in terms of a celebration of his arrival in a person who accepts Christ as their Savior. And then as the church, we also celebrate and prepare for his coming, uh, his, his second return as Jesus our King. And one of the, one writer put it, she says, one of the essential paradoxes of Advent is that while we wait for God, we are with God all along. That while we need to be reassured of God's arrival, our arrival, or the arrival of our homecoming, we are already home. While we wait, we have to trust, to have faith, but it is God's grace that gives us that faith. As with all spiritual knowledge, two things are true and equally true at once. The mind can't grasp paradox. It is the knowledge of the soul. And so I I stand here as a person who went to bed last night waiting for a God that I knew was there already. And it didn't occur to me until I got here today that he was just like, I'm just going to give you a little Advent exercise to do. And it's just like his sense of humor sometimes is annoying, but it is... (laughs) it's his. You know. So uh, the passage that I want to launch us out of today is uh, found in Isaiah 61. And Isaiah is, is one of those, those breathtaking books. It's breathtaking, it's excruciating, it's a gorgeous book. Every emotion of God in his relationship with man is found in that book. Um, Man at his best and man at his worst and man at his most irritating and man at his most loved is found in the book of Isaiah. There is a story that Eugene Peterson and Bono tell about how the two of them met and how the meeting, their first meeting was delayed because Bono, who is a rock star, as many of you know, wanted to meet with Eugene Peterson because he'd read his book, Run with the Horses. And so he had his people call Eugene's people, which basically means Eugene, and, and said, you know, I, I want to meet you, and I want to talk about this book. And Eugene said, I couldn't do it because I was working at the time on Isaiah um, in the Message Bible. So he was working on translating the book of Isaiah. And the guy who was interviewing the two of them said to Eugene, he said, did you know who he was? He said, well, I, I, I'd read about him, you know. And then he said, well, you realize that Bono is asking you to go on tour so that he can talk to you about your book. And he said, yes, I realize that. And he said, this is Bono. And Eugene Peterson said, this is Isaiah. (laughs) And I thought that was just such a telling, beautiful thing about Bono versus Isaiah. Bono, Isaiah. For Eugene, it was like Isaiah for sure. It's definitely Isaiah. Um, Isaiah gives us the most comprehensive prophetic picture of Jesus in the Old Testament and we see his entire journey foretold. We see the announcement of his coming. We see the virgin birth. We see he's uh, his forerunner John the Baptist in the book of Isaiah he's foretold about. We see his sacrificial death in the book of Isaiah. We see his return to his people in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 61 one through three is what we're going to look at. It's tucked in the center of a collection of beautiful prophetic poems Isaiah 60, 61, and 62, declaring God's intention to keep his promises to his people. And so our passage is verses one through three. And it says, The Spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and the release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance to our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called the Oaks of Righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. These words, this this stunning prophetic promise um, actually met a very discouraged and angry and bitter and confused Israel. They were in exile at the time and it was a very hard place and it gave them something to look forward to. But not just something, it gave them the thing to look forward to because everything in their history was pointing toward this promise. When you read the Bible, it's interesting because most people don't consider the fact that as many stories as there are in the Bible, there's actually just one story. There is one story about the love of a jealous God and the sacrificial love of a savior and the unifying and transforming love of a Holy Spirit. There's just one story and all stories point to this Savior, Jesus Christ, all the stories in the Bible. And if the story that you're reading doesn't seem to point to that, just stick with it, because it will eventually point to Jesus for you. And so while every story found its climax in God's promise to save his people, by his own outstretched hand, he would do it through the servant, the Messiah. And the words also meet us where we are. It meant them in Israel where they were in exile. It also meets us where we are here in 2022 in the ashes and in the morning and our despair and our poverty and our darkness and in our bondage. It it meets us in our comfort and our and our lack of care for the things that are going on and our complacency. It meets us in this place in 2022. It meets us in a place where there were just to date in November here, 607 mass shootings in this country alone. 40 million people in this country live in poverty. One third of our quickly um, growing homeless population are families. And as the church, we wait and we hope And we expect a God to come and come to to us, but also to come to others through us. And that is what it means to be the church. So today I want to zero in on Isaiah 61, specifically verse 3. So the ramp in, to comfort all who mourn. And to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow upon them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, they will be called the oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And I want to focus very specifically on this idea of joy instead of mourning. This to me is the most outrageous of all of the claims made in this passage. There's a series of contrasts and contradictions that mark Jesus in the kingdom, just in general that he talks about how the person who wants to be the greatest needs to be a servant, that what's going to happen, you know, you think about how Jesus talks about what will happen and then it already has happened. When it happens in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit falls, it says, Peter says, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke about. And so there's this idea that we move forward into yesterday and pass there to the day before, that all of the things that God has promised we find actually in the Garden of Eden. And so you have this beautiful upside-downness of the kingdom that that Jesus becomes king by emptying himself of his equality with God. As Augustine put it, he says, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep. The way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on the wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. And we get this, right? We, we get this when we see it on the page. The hard thing, though, where we get tripped up often is the walking out of this, don't we? We? You know, when we connect to the poetry of it, that's one thing. But when we try to connect to the practice of these things, it becomes another thing altogether. What may be easy to understand is oftentimes difficult to stand under. The things that make God sense make us sometimes question our good sense. And then there are those things that just seem crazy far-fetched like this offer of joy. It's not the only offer of joy. There are many in scripture. It talks about how weeping will endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That he will turn my mourning into dancing. That those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And if you've ever mourned or grieved anyone, you know that this is not a small thing that there is loss in mourning, that there is pain in mourning, that it is confounding, that you are changed, that you find yourself living as a different self in a different world. On the 22nd of December, it will be the, the third anniversary of my own mom's death. And so I understand that it, it, it is like a rudder. It's just gone and you're aimless. You don't realize the compass of your parents until they are not there. And I mean good parents or bad parents. When a parent goes, there is something that just throws you off. And so I would I would encourage you to pray as often as you can for Scotty in this season, because it just kind of hits you sometimes when you when you least expect it and the loneliness that hits you because no two people experience mourning and grief the same. So you feel like you're the only one there no matter how many people come to you and say, I understand how you feel. They truly cannot understand fully how you feel. And you are humbled in your mourning. It is the humblest of expressions and you are helpless and you are rootless and you are bottomless and you are groundless. And that's as far from joy as it gets. And yet we wait for one who will exchange our mourning for joy. So as the church, we wait for the unimaginable. He hasn't said that he would give us back what we lost, but he says that he will give us joy to hold on to in our loss. Sounds like a contradiction until you look at it through kingdom eyes. And so I want us to see this joy through three different lenses. The first is for us to look at joy in terms of the source of this joy. The source of our joy is not ourself, but rather the source of this joy is our triune God. Each of them and all of them, Father, Son, and Spirit. Isaiah 61 says, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. And when Jesus launches his his ministry in Luke 4, 21, he he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So you have Jesus there. And he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. And then you see Jesus saying in John 15, he says, I have told you all of these things that he tells them in the upper room discourse. I've told you all of these things So that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be complete. And so now we see joy sourced in Jesus. You see in Psalm 45, 7, it says, You love righteousness. It's a messianic psalm. You love righteousness, talking about Jesus, and hate, wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And so you have this Savior who comes and launches his public ministry by saying, his joy is my joy. Our joy falls short without Jesus. And then Paul says in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not about our efforts, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so you see that this joy is sourced in God, in Jesus, and in the Holy Spirit. And as C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. And so not only do we want to look at this joy in terms of the source of it, but we want to look at the sound of this joy. What is the sound of joy? It sounds like the heart of God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 say, For my thoughts, this is God talking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He created everything in his imagination, from his desire, with his word, and he wasn't speaking English, and he wasn't speaking Greek, and he wasn't speaking Hebrew. When he spoke all things into existence, he was speaking fluent Jesus. But that is another sermon for another time. And yet, as Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, "'Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries.'" He gave us a world that tells us all about himself. When we think about it and we look at the book of Genesis and he says, let there be light. Clearly he didn't need light or it would have already been there. But he said, let there be light for our sake so that we could see him in all things. And from that point all the way to today, every single thing, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, everything tells us who he is and about his heart and again everything in the world tells one story about the love of a jealous god in the person of a sacrificial Jesus through the witness of a, wit- of, a of a unifying and a transforming holy spirit he gave us the world to tell us about himself and his fullness is in Jesus in colossians he says it pleased him. Paul says it pleased God to put all of his fullness in Jesus. When I'm talking to kids about the difference between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, one of the things I like to tell them is God is invisible, but if you stood in front of a mirror, what you would see is Jesus. If you looked at the image in the mirror, you'd see Jesus. If you want to know if God likes broccoli, ask Jesus. My guess is no. (laughs) My guess is he does not. That's just me. I'm just saying that. I don't know. But that's my guess is that he just does not. I'm just going to say that. So in Isaiah 55, verses 10 to 11, I, he goes on to say that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed to the sower and bread for the eater, so my word goes out from my mouth and it will not return to me empty but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purposes for which I sent it. Now you see just how beautifully God says, okay, so I made the snow and I made the rain so that it would look like what I intend and what is in my heart. And so when we look at our world and we look at the things around us and we look at the people, we even look at the biology of our own bodies. We see the story of who God is and how he loves us. Loves and what he desires. His word from his mouth, and yet he's such a mystery. It's important to know that when we consider that, we can't we we love his word and we love what he says and what he declares through his son Jesus Christ, but we cannot make a God of the words, because as I said, when he spoke the word into when he spoke through his word. We we make the difference in the distinction between the word and the words. And sometimes we can get caught up in the words and miss what God means when he says what he says. So when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, he doesn't mean literally our English word hate. He means Jacob I loved and Esau I did not love the way I loved Jacob. And so we can look at that and we can say, oh, he hated Esau. And then we decide we hate Esau and every descendant of Esau wrong. (laughs) It's like, because he says, he just, he he doesn't use, he doesn't speak English. (laughs) He only speaks it to us so that we understand it. He gave us the law. He gave us the law. And then we took it and decided to make 600 and some odd laws on top of the law. Until he finally said, look, all of these laws, even if you get it down to the 10, they pretty much mean love me, love others. Period. Love me, love others. That's all it means. You had, you had Abraham who said, well, God said I'd have a kid. So he decides he's going to take it upon himself to make that happen. And then we end up with Ishmael. How many Ishmaels do we have in our lives today because we decided to take God up on what he said, the words, and not what he meant. If I had a nickel for every time he pulled my coattails and said, no, not yet. I told you what I'm going to do. I didn't say, go do it. I told you what I'm going to do. That is anything too hard for God. Yes, it's too hard for you. It is not too hard for me. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 11, he says, these things God has revealed to us by his spirit. He says, the spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And so we see the source of of our joy is God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And the sound is God's heart as revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ through the teaching and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal God's heart about a matter. And when we stop at what God says without considering his heart, his will, his plans, his story, his person, as author and finisher, potter and creator, comforter, savior, healer, truth, lover, and so much more through his spirit. When we don't allow his spirit to speak in us, then God can only be as big as we understand bigness. He can only be as kind as we understand kindness. He can only be as powerful as we understand power. Only as loving as we understand love And he literally becomes the shape of our own understanding and nothing more. And then we have to ask that question, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm limited in my thinking? What if I'm short in how powerful I think God is? God is infinite and I am not. So not only do I want you to see through the source and through the sound of this joy, but I want you to see the shape of this joy. What does this joy mean? look like in the real world. It looks like God's love. In the Old Testament, that word is hesed. And I know that you guys have heard that word here, and Scotty has explained that word to you, and and that word agape, when he talks about what that looks like. But it is God's grace and favor and mercy, kindness. It is a heart going out to someone, and God drawing someone to himself through that love. It is God's covenant love, and that matters. Isaiah 61 is about God's covenant promise to his people. The word joy in that passage is shashon, which translates into gladness, joy, exaltation, mirth, but, mirth, but it's, it's not that simple. There's another word that translates into the same that typically refers to human circumstances. This is not that word. This is a word that is a joy that is sourced in God, a joy that sounds like the heart of God, and it is a joy that is shaped like God's love. And when we see God rejoicing, the word that is used, coincidentally, is the root of the same word that we have here. And why does that matter? If you look at Deuteronomy 28... 63 It says, Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please Him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. King James Version says it this way, And it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced, same word, over you to do good and to multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to naught and you shall be plucked from off the land whither thou goest to possess it. A couple of chapters later Israel turns back to God and he rejoices over them for good. Now this seems kind of mean because I know you guys are thinking he's going to rejoice over destroying me that kind of that's kind of not cool. You know, and if we're looking at it through anything but a kingdom lens then of course you will see a very mean, angry, vengeful God. But there's a difference in the way that God sees joy versus how we see joy. We see joy in much the same way that we see pleasure or happiness. How we feel shapes what we know. But God is looking through the lens of his future plans, the fulfillment of his covenant, his promises. For him, it is what he knows about tomorrow that shapes how he feels today. So he knows they're going to come back. And so he can rejoice over the discipline that he has for them. So his joy is not specifically in the discipline. It's in what the discipline will produce people who have returned to him. So we see the shape of God's thinking in Hebrews 12 where it says that we have seen that uh, it says that have you completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son it says my son do not make light of the lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son a little later it goes on to say no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful Later on, however, it produces, outcome, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The outcome for God is the lens through which he sees all of his actions. As the potter, he sees what the pot is going to be as he's making it, you know, and so he understands what's going to happen later. And so for us, when we think about, we say, how I feel determines what I know. Life is hard, so God is absent. I am sad, so God is not with me. And God is saying, no, what I know, what I want you to see in joy is that what you know determines how you feel. And so right before he says what he says in Hebrews 12 about us, he has Jesus as the example. And it says in Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy... Set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. The joy we celebrate at Advent is sourced in our triune God. And it sounds like the heart of God. And it is seen in Jesus Christ. And it's shaped like God's Hesed covenant love. The love that sees tomorrow and sees the kingdom come it sees the kingdom coming fully, it sees eternity, sees people transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, it sees the promise fulfilled, and even though we can't see it, we've heard this. And so we live as people who look out at the world and say, do you hear what I hear? This is why James says to us, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that it will produce patience and when patience does its job, you'll be perfect, lacking nothing. Tomorrow is shaping how you feel today. The promise shapes how you feel today. So joy, the joy that he gives us, it meets us where a bottle or a needle or a warm body or control or power or money cannot meet you. I have a friend um, named Andre, and he had—and the doctors still don't know why—he had a stroke at age like 42, 43. And he was the healthiest person I knew, but he had this stroke, and and he couldn't—he couldn't walk, he couldn't lift his arms, he couldn't. They were worried that even the things in his brain that would remember to breathe and to eat were not, could go at any minute. And so I remember him sitting in the hospital and he was crying, he was in tears because he could not sign his name on a hospital form. And I remember reading and coming to him and bringing him, you know, what I was learning and all the books that I was learning about strokes. And his family and his friends were telling me, don't talk to him like that, you're gonna get his hopes up. And he said to me, tell me everything that you learn. This person who could not lift a book, And so I remember one of the things I read, the only thing I remember to this day, because this has been many years now, the thing I remember the most in my reading was that you are to commit yourself to the very best healing that you can imagine. Not the healing the doctors can imagine, not the healing your family can imagine, not the healing that a book can imagine, but commit yourself to the very best healing that you can imagine and hold on to that. And so I thought, that's amazing. And so I told him that. And then with really scraggly handwriting, he wrote on a page of a journal that I just kept for him. He wrote, I will leave here one of two ways. On my walking or in a pine box. Because he was determined. He said, I will die before I become a person who is not walking and not moving and not living the life that I used to live. And today, if you didn't know Andre had a stroke, you would not know Andre had a stroke. And I remember going with him to one of his doctor's appointments and the doctor told him to get up on the table and assumed it was going to take him a while. And he jumped up on the table. And the doctor turned around and before he could catch himself, he said, whoa, he said, Man, we thought you were a goner some weeks ago. A doctor says to him, We thought you were a goner. And if he had committed himself to the best recovery a doctor could imagine, he would be a goner today. And if he could commit himself to the best recovery that he can imagine, how much more of a life can we imagine with the Holy Spirit? that lives in us, that says, wait for something unimaginable. Beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise for heaviness. How much more? Commit yourself to what you know, not how you feel. Augustine's quote, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. So we wait. Not as the world waits, uncertain and searching, but as the church, men and women and boys and girls who know. We wait with joy for the ruler of the stars, the bread of life, the living water, the way, the truth, the life, strength, and healer. We wait for the one who was and is and is to come. We don't look up and wonder if he is who he says he is. We look up and wonder that he is who he says he is. He is Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we wonder that it would occur to you to come and see about us, not by giving us. Provision, or knowledge or understanding or power or control but by giving us yourself you are Emmanuel you are God with us and so as we celebrate you in this Advent season we celebrate you as people who know that it is Advent every day that every day we live knowing that you will come that we reach for every bit of the kingdom that we get a glimpse of, that we show every bit of the kingdom that exists in each of us, that we wait knowing, that we wait certain, that we wait with our hope anchored in you. We are not people without rudder. We are not people without direction, without a true north, without a compass. We have you. And so, Jesus, I thank you for all that you did, every sacrifice. I thank you for the way you would not grasp equality with God, but rather you poured yourself out. I thank you that we are in the grip of an open-handed God, a God who is generous, a God who is loving A God who was for us in the Old Testament, with us in Jesus Christ, and now lives in us with his Holy Spirit. There is none like you, God. And we praise you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.